Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from First Orlando. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at firstorlando.com. And if you're in the Orlando area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now, enjoy this podcast from First Orlando. Curious, uh, any Uber people in the room, like you'd like to take Uber or do it a lot? Anybody? Yeah, a lot of you. Well, I'm an Uber guy. I end up, it's a super convenience, and I take Uber often. And one day, uh, I was having my uh, vehicle in the shop, and I had a, called an Uber driver to take me from here to the church to uh, pick up my, my car, my, my truck. And uh, I'm uh, like, I don't talk in the Uber. Uh, I prefer to be the quiet guy, right? And uh, can't always work out that way, but this particular day I hopped in and I wouldn't hardly settled in my seat and uh, he started talking to me. And uh, the pretending to be on the phone all stuff didn't work, I had to, I had to engage. So uh, he says to me right from the very beginning, what do you do here? I said, well, I'm one of the pastors. And I tried to describe a little bit about what I do and, and uh, you know, ministry here. He said, oh. This is a great church. I said, well, thank you. Have you, like, been here before for one of our services? Nope. I said, okay. So you've not, I'm thinking to myself, you've not been here, but this is a great church. I said, so why do you say this is a great church? He said, because my girlfriend's pregnant. And we couldn't afford a sonogram. And somebody told us that if we came to your church we could get a free sonogram and see the baby. And so we showed up. He said, it's on the other side of your campus. Like, I didn't know where it was, you know? It's on the other side of your campus. And um, you, can, you can go there, and they'll give you a free sonogram, and they'll let you see a picture of your baby. And then he said, my, my girlfriend came in, and they took her to the back. Just the nicest people, man. Just, I just can't say it. Just the nicest people. And then this young guy came in, and, and he sat down next to me, and he, he started having a conversation with me, and he didn't say anything bad or mean, and I was really nervous. And, man, he was just the nicest guy, and he told me about his life and how he's connected with the church, and, and, and he talked to me about Jesus, and I really, he says, I don't really know about all that stuff, and I'm still asking a lot of questions, but... Man, he was the nicest guy. And then they told us that this church, you guys will actually help by providing diapers for us. And he said, I'm so scared. We don't have the money to have a baby. We weren't planning on a baby. And I'm so scared, but this church is going to help us have a baby. It's the nicest church I've ever heard of. That week I'd been studying about the topic we're going to talk about today, the resurrection. I was asking myself the question, what difference does the resurrection make? And in that car that day, I said, this is what the resurrection does. It changes people to be people like that. That'll be nice, so nice to people that they walk away going, that's the nicest place I've ever been. The reason we're that way is because of Jesus. And the reason we follow Jesus is the resurrection of Jesus. It is the most defining event in history because it validated who Jesus is. It authenticated that he is who he said he is. Jesus Christ is the good news. And it's the only news we have to share. You know why we have a volunteer over there at the pregnancy center telling young men 
about Jesus is because Jesus is the good news. He is the gospel. And somebody's telling about him because they've, Jesus has changed our life. They've been changed by Jesus. That is the only thing we have to share. We can help and do all that, but Jesus is the best news, the good news. We do have something to tell. And it's because of the resurrection of Jesus. The day Jesus came out of the grave, that's the day it all started. It's when everything changed. And Paul in this passage is reminding us what that meant. Paul reminds us that the resurrection of Jesus, that Christ, Jesus Christ proves that he was who he claimed to be. It's the resurrection that proved it. With that, the, the healings are awesome, the miracles are great, the teaching is fantastic. All of those things did not prove he was who he said he was. Because only one man walked out of the grave. And he's the one. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is the singularly most authenticating and validating and confirming event to the deity of Jesus and to our redemption. It all rests on the resurrection. If there is a resurrection, we have hope. If there is no resurrection, as you just listened to, we have no hope. We're to be pitied. Because of the resurrection, you know what we can do? We can live without fear. Because Jesus is alive. He's alive. Like he came out of the tomb. We can live without fear. And we can die without fear. You can't scare us. Because he's alive. He walked out of the grave, for goodness sakes. And we have to pay attention. Like this is the, this is the validating event. According to Paul, our fate rests on this. This is what this whole passage is saying. I want us to read in the ESV. I'm going to show you here verses 14 through 19. It says this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. My preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. I'd be misrepresenting God because I've testified that God raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep, those who have died is what this means, in Christ have perished. For if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul paints a pretty, pretty bad picture of what life is like if there's no resurrection. If it's not true, our faith is in vain. I'm misrepresenting. Our faith is futile, he says. We're still in our sins. Some have perished, and we're most to be pitied. People should feel sorry for us because he didn't raise from the dead. We've got no gospel. There is no good news. It is as though Paul is saying, this is the line. This is the line of commitment. If there is no resurrection, if there is no such thing as a bodily resurrection and Jesus did not come out of the grave, then there's no reason for what we're doing. But if, they, if he did, then you can stake your life on it. And because he came out of the grave, we can put all of our hope. Christ is the center of our lives because he came out of the grave. More than his teaching, more than his wisdom, more than his authority, more than his healings, more than his miracles, more than his popularity, more than all of those things, his resurrection is what set the church in motion. 
It's what started it all. Think about it. On the day of his resurrection, people were crowded into a room, all of his followers, the, the, the 12 or the 11 that were left, and, and probably a lot more, probably some of the people he had healed. Probably Lazarus and his sisters were in there, and probably not far away from there was Jericho, so maybe Zacchaeus was in there, and Bartimaeus on the way to Jerusalem, he healed Bartimaeus who was blind. He was probably in there. These people, Jesus had changed their situation, but he hadn't changed his own. He's dead, and they're hiding in a room. You know why they're hiding in a room? Because they're afraid they're going to come do to the followers what they did to the leader, which is pretty logical assumption, right? They killed him. Uh-oh. We may be next. And they're hiding. And then you know what the Bible says? The narrators say, and then Jesus was in the room. He appeared, and everything changed. Everything changed because of the resurrection. So the question is, do you believe in the resurrection? And can we believe in the resurrection? There are probably some people here today, I hope even, that you're not yet following Jesus. Maybe you're watching. Or maybe you used to follow Jesus because your parents told you you should believe the Bible, but it has become somewhat unbelievable to you. And you've deconstructed your faith or just kind of stepped away from it. And you said, I'm not sure I can believe something like a resurrection. Like, isn't that a little far-fetched? And isn't, isn't that a little bit unreasonable? Don't you think his followers just made that up? And the question is, can we believe the resurrection? And it's super important because Paul said, if we can't believe that the resurrection didn't happen, let's shut the doors. We're done. But it did happen. So we're not done. So how do we believe it? I think we, we believe it for the very reasons that we believe just about everything we believe in history. I like to think about what I call the red flag rule. Y'all know in football they do this thing, the challenge flag, like if the play doesn't go called the way they think, they want the officials to do what? To relook at the play. You know what they believe? They believe an eyewitness. So they throw, here you go, Robin, they throw, didn't throw it very far, but they throw the red flag. And it says, take a look. You know why we can believe the resurrection? The number one reason why any case in court passes is because of eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. There were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. I want you to look, verses 4 through 8, look what it says. This is talking about Jesus, that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's the Apostle Peter, and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more, listen to this, to 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. This is in about 53 AD when this was written. So, and then he says, though some have fallen asleep, that means they've died. Then he appeared to James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. The reason we say half-brother is because Joseph, Mary's husband, was not the father of Jesus, but he was the father of James. So, Jesus' Father is God. So, James, by all intents and purposes, is the brother of Jesus, raised in the same home as the younger brother of Jesus, who ended up calling Jesus Lord because he saw Him alive after he saw Him dead. You're Lord. I saw Him alive. And then to all the apostles. And then Paul says, and last of all, 
he appeared to me. Paul considered the Damascus Road experience that he had with Jesus, where Jesus appeared to him, as he saw him alive. So he considered himself an apostle because of that. Now, this passage of Scripture, this letter written from Paul to a church in Corinth, this is a real person, the Apostle Paul, to a real gathering of believers in Corinth, a real city. He wrote this in around, like I said, early 50 AD. This preceded the gospel message. This is before that. He writes this. It's almost like this is his like defense of the gospel, the very first defense of the gospel. There are other eyewitnesses too. You had Mary Magdalene that the gospels tell went to and had other Marys with her. We don't know who exactly who they all are, but she went to the tomb. She went to the tomb that morning to try to anoint the body. There was no body there in the tomb. It was empty. There was no body to anoint. What did she do? She went and saw an empty tomb, and what did she do? She went and told somebody. And then they came to the tomb, and they saw an empty tomb, and what did they do? They went and told somebody. You know, that's been happening probably every day since. People go see the empty tomb and go, I got to tell somebody. I just saw an empty tomb. So Mary Magdalene, there were three different times Jesus appeared to seven of the disciples. And then there's a time where he appears uh, on the road to Emmaus. He appears to two people. They give us one name as a guy named Cleopas. We don't know the other friend with him. And they don't recognize Jesus at first, but then he sits down to eat with him. And the way he breaks the bread, something about the way he did that, they recognized what he was doing. And somebody may ask us, so are there, are there sources outside the Bible that we can trust? Like, are there extra biblical? And if you're asking that question or looking for that, I'm not sure you understand what the Bible is. The Bible is witnesses outside the Bible, the collection, because these books were written about the resurrection, and what made them go in the Bible is that they validated the resurrection. That's when they were written, there was no New Testament part of the Bible, just the Hebrew scriptures existed. When 1 Corinthians was written, it wasn't part of a collection of books. It was the defense of the gospel, chapter 15. Like this is the way early believers, and they sent it to one church, and it was so moving, they would take that letter to other churches, other gatherings of believers, and say, hey, this is, how, this is why we believe the resurrection, because all of these people who are still alive saw him alive. We can believe the resurrection. It happened because people saw him alive. Another reason we can believe the resurrection is because the tomb is empty. How many of you have had the joy of going to Israel to see the empty tombs? Any of you in here? A few of you have. It's a pretty amazing thing. So there are two different places that are uh, visited to observe the empty tomb. One is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's the place that I believe is actually the tomb. It doesn't look much like what we'd want the tomb to look like. There's a, I'm thankful that there's a big church on it, uh, because if it wasn't, there'd probably be apartments on it. And I'd rather go see what looks like the tomb is inside this. They don't let you take pictures inside, so this is as close as I could get with my phone to take a picture. So this is probably the, the location, and I think it's like 336 AD uh, is when this spot was venerated, and they built the first church on this spot. 
in, in three, I think 336, in the 300s is when that was. In the late 1800s, a long time later, uh, they found another spot that probably looks like more what the real place looked like uh, when Jesus was actually buried. And we call it the garden tomb. And this is the place that a lot of Christians go to to, to visit. It's okay to go to either or both. I like visiting both when we're there. The key is this, they're both empty. Okay, that's the key, they're empty. And the tomb was empty. Think about that. You ever seen another empty tomb? The answer's no, because only one person said he was going to do it and did it. He came out of the grave. And, and then think about this. There were groups of people. In fact, it's both what I call temple and empire. The religious leaders of the day and the political leaders of the day. All of the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and all the religious leaders and all the power of Rome, all the way to Caesar, had a lot of motivation to find the dead body of Jesus because they were so determined to stomp out this Jewish cult, to put an end to it, that they killed its leader. And then now they're gonna claim that there's a, a resurrection? We have to find the body. They were doing everything they could to locate the dead body of Jesus, and they couldn't find it. Do you know why they couldn't find it? Because he was alive! That's why they couldn't find it. <clears throat> the fact that they can't find it. It's a lot of circumstantial evidence. So I'm not an attorney, but I have attorneys in my family. Don't hold that against me, okay? <clears throat> so I, I called my brother who's an attorney and said, hey, so tell me a little bit about like how, how significant is eyewitness testimony? And how many eyewitnesses do you have to have in order for something to be considered true. And so we talked a little bit about it. He said, well, <clears throat> it's not just the number of eyewitnesses, it's the credibility of the eyewitnesses. Like, do they have reason to lie? Is there some motivation on them like they're gonna gain if they tell a lie? Uh, the eyewitnesses we have, not only did they not gain, they died because they told the truth. They died because they told the truth. They saw him alive and temple and empire were doing everything they could to squelch the cult they called the church. He also said it's, it's like if you get independent witnesses that their stories are kind of the same, and then does it match kind of circumstantial evidence? If you look at all of that just from a, you know, sometimes people think that when you walk into church you have to leave your brain behind. I think it's the opposite. If you don't believe the resurrection, you've left your brain behind because all of the facts lead. Now, yes, is it hard to believe? Yes, it's hard to believe. It's the hardest thing in the Bible to believe. There's some really amazing things that happen in the Bible, sometimes really peculiar things that happen in the Bible, like a person getting swallowed by a whale. But none of that is as hard to believe as a person walking out of the grave. But it's the foundation of, that everything is built on. Jesus walked out of the grave, and he has a bodily resurrection. Like, do you know that, like, he made a point. I know he thought 100 years from now or 60 years from now or 2,000 years from now, people are going to wonder, 
Was it a real body or did people just imagine it? Was it like a ghost or was it real? Do you know what he did? He said, touch me, touch, touch the wound. He was a physical body, like a body resurrected. His body was similar enough to our bodies that it, it looked like a body and they could touch it and feel it and they could hear his voice. And do you know what else he did? He ate four times after his resurrection that we know of, that, that is recorded, that he ate. It's like he, his body needed food. You can't need food if you don't have a physical body. You can't eat physical food if you don't have a physical body. Jesus was physically, bodily resurrected from the tomb, from the dead. And all of our faith is built on that. There's a, an apologist named Norman Geisler, who's brilliant. He's passed away now, he's with Jesus today but he has amazing information. If you wanna research more about how can I believe the resurrection, just Google it. How can I believe the resurrection? Norman Geisler, and lots of information on why we can and should believe the resurrection. And because of the resurrection, everything Jesus said about himself is true. And we can live without fear, and we can die without fear. Man, it's a turbulent time in the world. Things are changing so fast. You know, I, I read recently that sociologists are saying that in the last 50 years in the United States and North America, there's been more cultural change than in the previous, uh, actually in our country, it would be 300 years or whatever, but they're saying within 1,000 years, there's been more change in 50 years than in 1,000 years. With the change in culture that's happening, back when I was a kid, almost everybody like had a Bible in their home and believed in God and the the purpose of life was to be good. Your parents taught you to be good. Today, most of our population doesn't subscribe to those things. That's the purpose of life is to be true to yourself, not to be good. And it, all of that has changed. And in turbulent times, like, wow, it's changing so fast. We have a tendency to get afraid, to, be, to get scared. We don't live in fear. Jesus is alive. There's nothing to be afraid of. <clears throat> and then... If you're gonna threaten to kill me, uh, it's not a threat. Jesus said to live as Christ and to die is even better. Like, wow, that's, I believe in the resurrection. I put everything on it. And that's the way we ought to live. We get so easily distracted by other things. Or like, sometimes Christ is not the center of it all. It's a lot of other things that become the center of it all. Jesus is the center of it all. And some of you, again, you, you haven't ever claimed that Jesus is the center of all. You're not, you've never put Jesus at the center of it all. I want to invite you, believe the resurrection. It is believable. It happened. And all of history changed when it did. Paul, lastly, was kind of saying, guess what? We only not live in fear. We don't die in fear. Verse 26 he starts with that. He says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death was destroyed. It's gone. It means nothing to us. Here's what he says. He expands on that in verses 30 to 32. He says, why are we in danger every hour? He's talking about himself and his, his companions that are traveling around. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus, which is something that he had to do. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. 
This thing he says at the end, there's three different references he makes, one about bad company corrupting character and, and one about baptizing people who are uh, being baptized for people who are already dead. And, and there's, there's really, he doesn't expand on those. Most commentators and scholars say he's, as Paul is prone to do, he's tapping into what are cultural uh, like lingo, like the way they would say things in culture. He's really not defending or advocating, but he's just tapping into things that they would already know. So this was probably a saying that they had in the day, and Paul's tapping into it. So was the bad company. And the baptism, some people believe, again, he doesn't advocate, he doesn't condemn it. It was probably something that was practiced, and he's saying even people who aren't Christians believe there's some kind of resurrection because they're being baptized for it. So you don't have to even, I mean, there is a resurrection for all of us. Um, so whether, he's, whether that's the case or not, here's what the point he is making. He had no fear of death. Paul talked about it a lot. And he was in danger a lot. You should read in some of the books where he talks about the things that happened to him. Over and over again, he's facing danger. Why would he face danger if he was afraid? If he was afraid of what was going to happen after death? He had no fear of death. I think it's something we could learn. There's a lady in our church named Hattie Bryant, and she went through an experience when her mom was terminally ill about 20 years ago, and, and she wasn't happy with the way that the, nobody had ill intentions or anything, but just the way the circumstances the way she describes it, they prolonged her mom's death, not prolonged her mom's life. Like her mom was ready to go to heaven and, and they kept intervening and kept doing other things to make her live a little bit longer, but it wasn't any kind of life that she was getting. And that motivated uh, Hattie to kind of uh, do some research on, she's done enormous amounts of research. She does some workshops. She's part of our church. Betsy attended on our behalf. I couldn't do it because it was on a Sunday morning, but it's been, it had a profound effect on Betsy and me to say, look, we I'm ready to go to heaven. Can I tell you that? You know, there's a song about everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to go now. I do want to go now. Now, I don't want to go now to the point that I'm going to do something stupid and harm and hurt myself because like Paul said, for me to live is Christ. He has a responsibility and something for me to do today. And I'm, I'm obedient to him and with joy serving him. And I, every day that I have breath, I'm going to serve. But I'm not resisting death. If next Sunday you show up and something happened to Danny, like Danny died this week. Here's what you need to know. I tell this to my family all the time. I died with a grin on my face. I'm smiling about what's coming. I'm not resisting it. I'm eager to be there. Think about it. Everything that we get to enjoy here, all the things we get to enjoy, whether it's relationships or families or money or houses or boats or cars, everything we get to enjoy, he made them. And he didn't call it paradise. He called that paradise and he made that. I'll take that over this any day. And that's the way Christians should live. Hattie, Hattie notes that Christians die no more gently than non-Christians. And that's sad. And I don't think it's because of ill intention. I think we just we don't think about it. We think we're supposed to fight for every breath, and we, there, it's a, there's a little bit of a tension there, so I want to acknowledge that. We do believe in life, so we don't want to hurt ourselves on purpose or other people on purpose, but there comes a time that it's time to go, and when it's time to go, don't resist it. Celebrate it like I'm ready to walk to Jesus. 
because I believe in the resurrection and I believe what Jesus, when Jesus walked out of the grave, grave, everything changed. I'm so excited I can't even say the words, right? Because he came out of the grave. I love the way Andy Stanley says it. We put all our eggs in this basket, the Easter basket. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. And in our turbulent and uncertain times, I'm glad I have something like the resurrection to stand on, firm footing. The rest of it I can kind of figure out as we go. But we live without fear. And we die without fear. We live without fear. We die without fear because of the resurrection. Betsy and I were in high school. We were dating. We graduated from Boone High School here in Orlando a long time ago. And uh, we were dating in high school. And, and uh, we met a teacher together. I wanted to be in a, I don't know if Betsy wanted to be in a class with me, but I wanted to be in a class with Betsy. And so we had this class together with a teacher named Sue Tyler. And uh, we became friends. Sue uh, was a young teacher. It was her first year to teach, and she wasn't much older than Betsy and me. And uh, we became friends. And uh, in those class settings, there were times, or even after school, we'd go to her uh, classroom and talk to her, and we had chances to talk to her about faith. Betsy probably more than me. Again, Betsy's the social one and the one that has no problem talking to people. And and she had a lot of opportunity to talk to Sue and to share with her and, and never really um, made any kind of commitment that we knew of. And I graduated in 1980, and Betsy graduated the year behind me, and, and we left school. And about two years after, I think, I was in college, and, and we were still in touch with Sue, and she got married down in South Florida somewhere, and and I got an invitation to her wedding, and I went down to her wedding to celebrate with her. She was getting married, and a part of that experience with her. And, and then we kind of lost touch. And in 1987, uh, Betsy and I were back for a trip to Orlando. We were living elsewhere, and, and um, we got a note from Sue. We'd come to Orlando, went back home, and then got this note. It says, Dear Betsy and Danny, It was such a joy to see you both last Sunday. I'd been anticipating the moment when I would see you and get to tell you that I had accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And the moment was a great one indeed. And then she goes on to thank us for the way we talked to her in those years, and then says, I guess I just wasn't ready until now. Although looking back, I sure needed it back then and only wish I had accepted Christ long ago. Love, Sue. And yeah, so um, this past February, cancer took Sue to heaven. And about four or five months before that, uh, she came to visit me. Uh, she lived, lived here in Orlando, and she came to talk to me about her end of life and all of that. And we were sitting out by Welcome Center A, and Sue says to me, I, I ask people often when I see them in settings like this or encounter them, my 
go to is I ask them, is there anything you're afraid of uh, that I can talk to you about? And then do you have any questions that I can answer for you? And when I asked Sue that, she said, no, I'm not afraid. Big old grin on her face, brain cancer, and weak and feeble, but man, her smile was like, no, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid. Um, I said, any questions? No, I just have one request. Will you and Betsy help me take these final steps to Jesus? That's what I'm asking. And it was our joy to do that. The only reason we can do that is because of a resurrection. With no resurrection, I have nothing for Sue. But because there was a resurrection and we get to participate in the resurrection, it was my joy to walk with Sue in her final steps to Jesus. That is the hope that we have. And maybe today you're, you're not taking those final steps to Jesus, but you're wondering about life and the purpose and about what happens after this. Or maybe it's just the turbulence of the day and the uncertainties of life that have you confused and worrying. I want to tell you, our hope is in Jesus. All of our hope is in Jesus. Christ is the center of our lives because of his resurrection. And you should believe it, and you can. Maybe, you know the lion I was talking about? Maybe today, maybe you're watching today, and you want to take the step across the line of faith. and Say, hey, I want to believe that resurrection. I'm going to believe that Jesus is everything he said he was because he came out of the grave. And for the rest of us, let's live with no fear. And let's die with no fear because of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for the resurrection of your son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us live in that victory every single day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you back next Sunday. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the First Orlando Podcast. For more information like our service times, location, and other contact information, be sure to visit us online at firstorlando.com. Have a great week.